Welcome everybody. Thank you for all of your letters that you, you send and also those who send their, their gifts. This last week we've had more response to what I said last Sunday than maybe anything in my recent memory that obviously found a place in your heart. And I want to, in a sense, continue that. Um, if you were not here last week, it's okay. This will stand on its own legs. But there are there, there's a parallel here to what we talked about last week. And it's Psalm 27. And let me read. Um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me, and he will lift me up upon a rock. And then at the end of verse 6, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Now, this Psalm 27, um, which is one of the most read psalms in the book of Psalms, um, the background of the psalm is probably the time that we've talked about so often, Absalom's rebellion, and uh, that was when all such possibilities took place. But really what I want to emphasize is what it's talking about, which is here is a man who is very obviously in great physical danger. But at the same time, he's also facing a war of words. If you go down to verse 12, he says, Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. And so false witnesses, the people who are telling lies about me, they're slandering, there's gossip all over the place. And he said, they breathe out violence. That is, they, they hold a threat in their words. And so here is David describing himself completely surrounded, physically, mentally, um, emotionally, and certainly not only being approached physically, but approached also with words that seek his destruction. And many times words can destroy you faster than, than the physical. Well, that, that's the background to this. Whether it was Absalom or another time at this point, I, I don't care. Um, I want you to feel what David is in the middle of. 
And, and so the psalm then begins with this explosion of praise. Uh, and you could say a declaration of victory. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Though a host encamp against me, in this I will be confident. And, and it goes on for the first three verses, which is why everybody reads this psalm. Um, I, I, I know hundreds of people who memorize the first three verses and then they don't have a clue what the rest of the psalm is about. Well, the rest of the psalm is actually about how David arrived at verses 1, 2, and 3. Did you get that? One Verses 1, 2, and 3, the explosion of confidence, of praise, of declaration of victory. That, that's wonderful. But then in verse 4, he moves in to tell us how he arrived there. In the middle of all the physical threats and all the mental threats, in the middle of all the words that were spoken against him, this is how he got in his innermost spirit to the first three verses. Do you get that? Therefore, what follows the first three verses is actually more important than the first three verses. Because, yes, he's making that wonderful declaration, and it looks magnificent stuck on your refrigerator door. But how do you get there? How do you live a life in which you say, without trying to force it, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom then will I be afraid? Though a host encamp against me, I'll be confident. My, my enemies come and they want to eat up my flesh. No, they will stumble and fall. A fantastic statement, but how do you get there? And as I say, verse 4 tells us how. It says, this is how, one thing, one thing in the middle of all those problems pressing him, one thing I've asked from the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now that that's, if you don't know what he's talking about, that seems sort of odd when, when you're being threatened by fist, by words, by threat, by gossip, by lies. It's strange to say only one thing I'm asking of God, that I can dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. I would expect him to say, one thing have I desired of the Lord that he will get rid of all my enemies. That makes sense, that's logic, that, that as some of the other verses in the Psalms, that he will, God will break the teeth of all my enemies, you know, uh, hand them over, throw them over a cliff. What? But what, really, seriously, one thing of desire of the Lord, one thing, and it's got nothing to do with that. It is that in the middle of everything that these people are doing and saying, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's what I want to really look at. What does that mean? And I have to say, what does it mean? Because I don't know if you've noticed, nobody flicked an eye as I read it. What What is David talking about? That I may dwell in, in the house of the Lord. 
and um, that has been translated um, in, in the, the next, I will meditate in his temple. So here you have the, come on, think about it, the house of the Lord, the temple, then he talks about the tabernacle as a secret place of his tent. And then in verse 6, the tent, just, just a minute. If you read that a hundred times, it might dawn on you that when David wrote this, there was no temple. David didn't build the temple. Solomon did. So he said, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. Then he gives his definite, in the temple of the Lord. And then he talks about the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle was there, but you couldn't dwell there all the days of your life. It was just not that kind of place. It wasn't a monastery. You, you couldn't go and set up shop inside the tabernacle. It was a tent, literally, in which there was the veil that contained the Ark of God. And only the priests, only the Levites, could even be inside the place. And then the high priest, the only one who could go before the ark. You, you, you as just a person who lived in, in the tribe of Judah, you could not say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yet he is talking about being concealed in the secret of that tent. So he wants to live in a temple that hasn't been built that the house of the Lord, which he hasn't even got plans for yet, and he wants to set up uh, an address in the tabernacle, that there is something here that is so wacko. Some have even said David didn't write this, that it must have been written in Persia, I don't know how many years later, in order to get the temple in there and... But once you've got the temple in there, well, the tabernacle isn't there. And so you've got another problem if you think, what is David talking about? Um, he, he, a place, he's very definitely, this is in the forefront of his thinking. And that's why I believe these two Psalms were written together in Absalom's time, where he says in Psalm 23, he says the same thing. It, it did. The goodness, mercy follows me all the days of my life. Surely I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Same idea. And so we've got to say he's not talking about temple as temple began and would be known under the times of Solomon and on into the New Testament. He's not talking about that because he wasn't there. And He's not talking about the tabernacle in the sense that one normally would because you certainly would visit the tabernacle, make an offering, come there at feast days, but you'd never talk of making it your residence. Maybe, perhaps the high priest could say that, but it was really understood to be the residence. It was God's tent. If anybody's going to have an address there, it will be God. The idea of David saying no. So he is describing an invisible place. 
and invisible, it was beyond all geography. Wherever he went, this was with him. If he said he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, which means in Hebrew to the vanishing point of days. So it means whatever the day, wherever I am in that day, whatever my geography is, I am going to be dwelling in the house of the Lord. Which means this house of the Lord is not in one place. This house of the Lord encompasses wherever I am. This is something that is foreign to the New Testament, uh, to the Old Testament. This is New Testament stuff. The New Testament's full of it. I show you in a minute. But then it's interesting. You know, here he is huddled around a campfire in the middle of a wilderness, knowing that these thugs are very close by somewhere. And yet as he huddles around a campfire, he says that at that very same moment he dwells in God's tent. And one translation, it's not this one, but there's one translation that puts in there, I will in his pavilion. And that's an important word, and I think it's the original. A pavilion was not just a tent. A pavilion was the king's tent that was in the middle of the army. So when the army pitched its tents, right in the middle of all the tents was the king's tent, and it was called the pavilion. And around the pavilion there was always the, the secret service guards. and uh, It was the most guarded place. So he's talking about all these different things. A temple, a tabernacle, a secret tent that concealed him, but at the same time saying, but it's the king's tent. I say again, all this language awaits the new, new covenant. In the Old Testament, everything they thought of in terms of worship was to do with something physical. So they went to the tabernacle, but much more importantly and um, with much more ado, they went to the temple, and, and the temple was in Jerusalem. And, and so they would go there, and, and they would go there with shouts and songs and stay there for a week in Jerusalem as they went through their feasts, and big deal. But it was the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. That, that's you live 70 miles away you couldn't say I, I'm, I'm doing this in, I'm with you in spirit that there was no such thing you couldn't be there in spirit you had to be there physically um, after the dispersion um, when Jews were found all over the world on the day of Pentecost they all had to send a representative to Jerusalem it's no use saying we're kind of with you and send a, a card of congratulation that no you had to be there it was a physical place we we have lost the sense of the new testament lost it completely it was began to be lost in, in around the end of the second century no the third century 
Um, and up until that time, the, the believers did not meet in buildings. And it was part of what I'm talking about. There was this wondrous sense that, as I, I said in the Bible school the other day, that the Old Testament is a scaffold. And the scaffold was temple, tabernacle, high priest, priest, sacrifice, bloodshed. That was all scaffold. But there's all the people knew. And then in the new covenant in the resurrection, Jesus tore down the scaffold. I mean, what upset everybody, after they took the scaffold away, they couldn't see the, the building. Um, do, do you follow me? In the New Testament... You don't have a temple. Now that is very upsetting to some people to the point where they've just skipped right over it. There's no tabernacle in the New, new Covenant. There's, there's not even um, a solid place that you could call where we meet. You met where you met. Sometimes that was in a synagogue, but many times it was in a home. And in the epistles, it, it writes to the church was in the house of, the house of, the house of. Jesus said, the day is coming and now is when you shall not worship God on this mountain or that mountain. Those who worship God worship him in spirit and in truth or reality. And, and the New Testament overloads on this. It says um, in Corinthians twice over, do you not know that uh, you are the, the naos, which means the holy of holies? You are that room in the middle of the tabernacle and temple which has God's address. You have become that. You are God's address. And then Peter, trying to make, make sense of that, says you are the stones of the new temple and Jesus is the cornerstone. And so he's saying, you wonder, how can I be the, the innermost sanctuary where God lives? How can I be that? How can we be that? Well, he says, because you are the stones. So we don't, we don't hew stones to build the building and, and call it temple. Now, I know you go, well, I, I'm thinking right now, I, I could go through San Antonio and pick up all these words which belong only to the Old Testament. This is the XYZ temple. Ever, I mean, they're, they're down there. The temple, but there is no temple. That was scaffold stuff. You had a building. It was a sacred building. When you, you stop at the door, you, you start talking in whispers because it's a sacred building. Well, yeah, right. But the sacred building came to an end in Jesus, in his resurrection. And now we look at each other and realize that in this building, shall I tell you, this building, which many people say, what a wonderful church it is. Shall I tell you why this building was built? What, 100 years ago, they built this building to be a bar. You are sitting in the bar of the Dude Ranch. Yeah. You say, well, now we, we've, we've sanctified it. No, you haven't. You are the holy stones. This never gets sanctified because that's a building. These are bricks. 
that you are the real stones that constitute the real address of God. But then he goes on in the same epistle to look at each one of them and say, you are the naos. And so even when all the stones walk away, each stone goes with the sense they're still in in this presence that make up the very presence of God on earth. And you are one of the stones. And so the stones assemble and the stones depart. So if I come, you know, in, in earliest church history, if you come to a town, where, where, where's the church? And they'd look at you kind of weird. Well, the church presently, if it's, they look at their watch about this time, the church should be under, a, there's a big bay tree in that cemetery. That, that's where the church is. And, but go there on Monday, where's the church? Well, the church is all over the city. Church is scattered, you see, scattered. In Ephesians 2, it makes a big point that we are the building of God, that we are that new sanctuary in which God lives, and the we that he emphasizes there of Jews and Gentiles. It's no longer a Jewish temple. It's the, and he says it's no longer Jew, it's no longer Gentile. It's the one new mankind has become the temple, invisible, universal, wherever you are. And again, in the Bible school, we talked about Zechariah, where he said in that day, which is this day, he said, even the bells on your horses and your cooking pots in the kitchen will be as holy as the holy of the holies. Because your kitchen is an extension of the Holy of Holies. How on earth did David get that? That he could sit there and know that A, there is no temple, and B, the tabernacle is way down the road there, and I would not necessarily be too welcome, because there's nothing much going on there anymore. Uh, and yet he says, I dwell in God's tent all the time unto the ages of ages, to the vanishing point of days. I sit in his temple and I behold the beauty of the Lord. We've got to understand this because so many people refer to this or whatever this is to you that this is the church. I'm going to church. You can't go to church. The church comes together but but. Don't, you see, I, I want to shake some people and say, have you ever heard of the Incarnation? Do you realize God came and split history? We are not in the Old Testament. Everything Old Testament was a glorious pointer to something they couldn't even put words to. The scaffold, it gave the shape, but they, they took away the physical and you're left with spirit. Spirit. What is spirit? Most people think, well, I actually heard one of you say, whenever, whenever I think of the Father, he's got a long gray beard. And, and Jesus, well, he's sort of like us. Then they said the Holy Spirit, he's a long gray blur. Whatever that means. I, I, another paper was written by a Presbyterian friend of mine. He, he was writing it with tongue in cheek. But he, but he said, um, the, the church of today, he said, we believe in Father, Son, and what's his name? 
It's because we don't know who the Holy Spirit is. It's just a, a vagueness. Be, if, if you talk to most people about spirit, they think about today, October 31st. That's spirit to them. Sp- do you realize spirit is invisible, real? Real that makes physical unreal. Spirit is more real than physical. Physical is the shadow that spirit casts in the earth. Physical is passing, is always passing. It's it's becoming more corrupt. It's falling apart. It's deteriorating. That's physical. That is the way it is. But spirit is unchanging, incorruptible. David knew it, that he's inside a place who is a person and that person is more real than all his physical enemies and more real than all the gossip, all the slander, all the lies and all the threats. There is a place of more real. It's interesting also the way he puts this. The secret place. As if he's hiding inside the secret place. He conceals me. Same idea. We've talked about this before. You, You know about hospitality, covenant hospitality laws. That if, if you're passing through, it is pretty much true today, actually. You get out into the desert places and you, you, you can't, once the sun begins to go down, you had better find somewhere to sleep. It's going to be dangerous. You've got to have something to eat in this, obviously. Um, no Dairy Queen, no, no McDonald's. You're stuck in the wilderness, nothing. And so the covenant law of hospitality is that you find a tent, you find a habitation, and all you do is hold the tent rope or put your hand on the door. And it means that you are asking, and hear me carefully, to come under the shadow of that home, under the shadow of the owner of that tent. You've heard Psalm 91, dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. It doesn't just mean you're standing beside him with the sun behind him, you're in his shadow. It means that you have entered into the covenant hospitality of God Almighty, El Shaddai. Do, you, you, you know, and, and of course, that was taken to limits we cannot understand in the West. That when someone um, is accepted into hospitality, they've come into your tent, you stand between them and all their enemies. I can only report it because it doesn't make sense to us. Your worst enemy can ask for hospitality and you have to give it. It would be unthinkable that you wouldn't give it. But now the worst enemies of your worst enemies have become your worst enemies. And you're going to stand between them and you are ready to die to protect the person that has now come under the shadow of your roof. Um... You, you are completely protected. You are cared for. 
If you are hungry, you will have the last crumb in the house, even if the family goes hungry that night. You will sleep on the best bed, or maybe the only bed. You will be cared for. That's... You come to the secret place of his tent, concealed in his tent, tabernacle. He's saying, I, I, have found, I, I needed the hospitality of God. I'm being chased by my enemies. And I come like a fugitive to be sheltered and protected. Only in this case, what I put my hand to for hospitality was the pavilion of God himself. That I've come into God's care. I've come into God's keeping. So what am I going to do? I'm now in his shelter. I have now realized that I dwell in the invisible, yet only real temple tabernacle. He said, in that place presence, I've only got one desire, and that is to behold the beauty of the Lord. Behold is a word we don't use anymore. It seems any word that's got any depth to it we don't use anymore. Um, it's an ancient word, but it's still in a lot of literature. But just think of it. Be, behold, be. Well, that is the, the verb, you know, I am, is. So be speaks of my being. It speaks of my being alive. Me, I. Hold. Well, if you hold, it means you are in someone's grip. It means someone is holding you. Or you are gripped by something that you're looking at. When we would use the term wonder. It means hold, put those things together. You're being drawn into a union. Behold means I am being held. But not just held. It's got in the, the idea of a grip. It, it's, it's I'm being gripped. Um, I, I am caught up into there's a sense of I'm almost unable to escape this. In Old English, the word behold also meant um, if, if I loaned you a thousand dollars, then have you ever heard this? You are beholden to me. Um, it means you're in my grip. And, and did you know the word mortgage is a Latin word that means death grip? Uh, a mortgage is, I've got you until death. Um, so, you, you know, words, they're fun, aren't they? Um, behold. If, if you behold, then you have been caught in something. And, and it's usually used to describe, I've seen something, I beheld it, I behold it, I look at it. And in looking at it, then it has power over me. It has gripped me. I can't take my eyes off. I, I am drawn to, dare we even use the term mesmerized, hypnotized, in the grip of. 
And that's the meaning of that Old Testament phrase, fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is essentially the same thing. Uh, the word fear, it, it means to stand in awe and wonder, speechlessness that I, I'm just held here by, by the magnificence of what I'm seeing. Fear, it means to worship. It, it brings us to that word that, again, it fills the Old Testament, and that is to know. To know that to know is to come into that union, um, or as we said last week, it means to be present to. You you know someone because you are present to them, and, and you are present to them without distraction. That is, I am present to this person, and and I'm held there. So all these words come together: the behold. The, the fear of the Lord to know, uh, and it means to to know, and all these other words feed into it. It means to relate to, to connect with my inner self. I know this person. I know them, and I know them by observation. I don't know them secondhand. You know, Jesus said to Pilate when he said, "Are you king of the Jews?" Jesus said, "Do, do you say that of yourself?" Or did somebody else give you the words to say? Yeah, big words, that's right. You stand there, pardon, are you king of the Jews? What do you know? You don't know what you're talking about. Who is the king of the Jews? Did somebody else tell you to say that? Or did you say it yourself? I would like to paste that across the front of so many congregations. You know, in the old English, speakest thou this of thyself? Or did another tell thee? You know, um, the word know means I know because I observed it myself. I was there. It means I experienced it myself. Um, you, you don't study a butterfly by capturing it in a jar or pinning it to a corkboard and then write a paper for school on a dead insect. Uh, you know what? I, you don't know that butterfly. You do, you just you can report on, on the way it's corrupted already. It's, it's dead in your hand. You don't know it that way. If you want to know a butterfly, you need to dance with it. Be caught up with the dance of the butterfly. Dance through the flowers and watch how it flies. Watch how it lands. See the magnificence of its wings as it opens. Follow it through the woods. Be awestruck by the wonder that God made this frail creature that could be blown away. And yet it carries in it such color, such magnificent. The dance of the butterfly. Um, I guess it takes a child to follow a butterfly and really know it by joining it in his dance. Oh no, child is the one who puts them in bottles and tries to capture them. The fact is, the only way you can know beauty is not controlling it. Um, the moment you try to control the butterfly, you killed it. Uh, the, the only way beauty dawns upon us is when I'm not trying to control it, nor when I see it do I make it my possession. When I see it, I don't try to get a pattern for it and say, that's mine. 
No, that you've killed it. That that's what denominations do. You know, they they see a truth and they say it's ours. Now you've got to join our church to get it. Uh, this yeah, God, we 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 call our churches by the name of an experience the founder had. You know. Um, so, I mean, why, why do the evangelicals exist? Because they were standing up against the liberals. Pentecostals? Yeah, because you had a Pentecostal experience. Now you patented it. Got a 501c3 and said it's ours. I'll never forget the charismatic movement. Yeah, I can say it because I don't know if the whole movement said it. But an Assembly of God pastor heard that in the charismatic movement, uh, Roman Catholics were actually speaking in tongues and glorifying God. He said, it must be of the devil. I said, why? He said, well, you've got to join the Assemblies of God to speak in tongues. He said, they're, they're Catholics. They're not even saying that. See, that means you've never seen the beauty. You caught it in a jar and it died. Yeah, see this. It's we've talked about that before. Are, are you standing in the sunbeam and letting it warm your whole body, or are you sitting in a physics class trying to understand sunlight? Um, yeah. Are you diving into the water, or are you studying H two O? Are you all talk? I love the ocean. I love the ocean. Just never leave my beach house. Or the person who studies the ocean but can't swim. Um, I, I'm very serious. This is beholding. This is beholding. This, is, this isn't dancing around it. And we behold the beauty and the beauty of the law. Therefore, we're, we're beholding the beauty of the person, which means I am beholding him, but with no thought of controlling him. Do, do you understand? I, I wish right now I had a class of theological students, because I've been through this. You, you study something about God, and then you kind of lasso that and try and control it. But now this is mine and I'm going to study it. And they're going to put DTH after my name. I've got a DTH after my name. I'm a doctor of theology. But God saved me from putting butterflies in jars. You know, it's... See, with beauty... You can only yield to beauty. You can only trust beauty. You can talk in terms of, I love that beauty. Beauty draws me into an intimacy and a union, but I can't control that. I'm not in charge. In that sense, beauty, I don't know if I can say this, beauty is. I, I contribute nothing to it. Nothing. Nothing. 
In fact, if I try to contribute something, I screw the whole thing up. I mean, feel this. David said, I only want one thing. Behold, the beauty of the Lord, which means that in this invisible, real, holy of holies, I am going to behold the being of God. But I can't control that. I can't file it away. Then what do you do? It's jaw drops. A joy unspeakable. A peace that passes human understanding. Eye has not seen nor ear heard. You see, you contribute nothing. All I can contribute to beauty is to see it. I become aware of it. And grab somebody and say, do you see that? And if you notice, there's always a joy with beauty. And it doesn't matter where you're finding this. It can be a sunset. Or it can be face to face with the glory of God. Wherever you find beauty, it gives you joy. And the beauty just is. Do you you know the word serendipity? When, When you come to something that you never planned on finding? That's usually how beauty, it just surprises you. It, it's, it's there. And with it comes a joy. Wow. And strangely, a peace. Most people I know that work in the big cities would do well to walk the coastline. Not looking, the moment you're on, I'm now going to look for beauty. Well, you just lost the whole jolly thing. Beauty reveals himself to you. And with it comes peace and healing. And I mean it. You can put a frazzled person, wrecked by anxiety, put them in a quiet place and let the beauty of the Lord steal upon them at all levels. You'll be healed. Beauty is somehow a doorway to another world. It, it, I tell you, beauty is somehow the um, Narnia going through the wardrobe, you know, that I, I never dreamt, I never dreamt. I, I was just standing here and beauty stole upon me and I'm drawn into another world because I think actually that's what beauty is. It's shafts of light that come to us from the presence of God at all levels. A world in which is harmony and joy and peace and love steals upon me. It beckons to me through the door. Like John, it says, come up hither. Beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord. Have you ever thought of the Trinity as something more than an old doctrine? Beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Holy Trinity. The beauty. To stand before the reality of a God who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. In which the Father unbeginningly, unendingly, unbounded loves the Son. The Son, the Father, the Spirit loves 
where I had this furnace of love that must give itself away. Have you ever followed that to the incarnation in which love must give himself to the creation? Have you ever thought of being included into Christ and therefore into the Trinity? See, don't, don't give me a doctrine on that. Don't give me a doctrine. Just ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes because your only contribution is to see it. We even use that word, I see it. I don't see it. I could keep on going. I'm obviously restricting myself right now. You, you could... All the things we say we believe, and we believe with a yawn. You know, we, we believe as if we're just reciting two times table. God, believe that. Whereas David says that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and do so in the realization of this temple who is none other than the Holy Spirit. You see, that, that's the new, it's there in the New Testament. Those guys who wrote the New Testament, they not, were not just reporting doctrine. Paul said of Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, when he said love, he meant all the facets of love in, in 1 Corinthians 13. The patience, the gentleness, the kindness. The God who keeps no record of wrongs. It's no wonder that when Paul begins to see this through the centuries, that from before time, God set his love upon us, included us in Christ, and he predestined us to this incredible destiny that we should be adopted into the family of God. And why would he do it? For the praise of his glory. You ever read Ephesians 1? There is a man. Okay, Ephesians 1 is a man who is beholding the beauty of God. And the last time I heard it preached on, it sounded like he was talking about the Manhattan phone book. It's, you know, just trying to prove a doctrine of election or something. But he's a man, and he kept punctuating it. Why would he do this? Why would he do this for the praise of the glory of his grace? The riches of the glory of his grace, it keeps spilling out. And if you read that in the original Greek as he wrote it, there's no punctuation. Every sentence runs into the other. His secretary must have been having anxiety attacks trying to write that down at the speed at which it's pouring out of him. That's, do you see the difference between I believe and I've seen the beauty of God? Who became the beauty of God became flesh in the person of Jesus. We've met the beauty. And then the beauty of God comes upon us and into us in the Holy Spirit. And again I say, let's see the beauty of God and this healing, this healing of our traumas, this healing of our anxieties and brokenness, just to see the beauty of God. When I say that God loves you, 
if you hear the beauty in that, you'll be healed at your deepest level. That's where it is. It's incredible that we can be totally blind in the presence of beauty. I was in a place once and this young entrepreneur was with me who he built hotels and that sort of stuff. And we were standing on this raw beach, I mean, untouched rocks and sea fowl, the cry of the gulls and, and the wondrous trees and palm trees and they went right down to the beach and the beach, you know, no one had walked on it. And, and I was taking my breath away, which is in other ways an awe, awestruck wonder, just... And, and he was writing. And I thought he might be writing a poem. No. He was figuring how much it would cost to put three hotels here. And, and he said, this is perfect for... And he got it all worked out, how much profit he could work. He said, I said, did you hear the gulls? Did you, did you hear the birds? And no, no, didn't even know they were there. All he could see was money. He was blind in the presence of beauty. Religion substitutes doctrine without a living person at the center of it. Oh, be careful. I mean, I'm speaking to so many different kinds of people right now. But, but I say, recognize that you can handle the beauty of God and see mud. It's, again, C.S. Lewis, do you remember the dwarfs? And they, they are brought into this great banquet and they, they pick up the golden goblets in which there's the finest wine of heaven and they sip it. They say, oh, this tastes like sour grape. And they go through the whole thing. They, they pick up the food. They, they say, this straw. They were incapable of even seeing or tasting or experiencing what was right in front of their eyes. It's religion. You go, you go to seminary. Well, it could be worse than this, but one of your best seminaries, all you get is words about God. You'll be told to memorize verses about God. And then you do an exam. Isn't that incredible? An exam on beauty? No, you don't have an exam on beauty. That's trying to control it, you see. We're going to bring in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to beauty. It's good, it's bad, passed, failed. You can't. You've got the thing in the jar. It is dead. You've done away with the living God and replaced with a dead thing, which means you're at home now with a cynic and an atheist. This is darkness. This is darkness most profound that is mocking and hostile to the living Jesus. And I know that. Because you go and lecture in these places and talk about a living Jesus that you spoke to this morning and the student class will laugh you to scorn. I've had that. Beauty. Realize, I said one thing. That's all I ask. He said, one thing. Don't let me lose that. One thing. 
thy desire. You can't add to beauty. That's why I say it just is. Nor can you subtract from it. If you take away one element, it's not what it was. It's complete. Perfect. If, if you are producing a painting that is going to be a work of beauty, if you're an artist at all, you know what I'm talking about. One, one stroke of the brush after it's done can destroy it. You got, you, you've done it and an artist knows that last stroke I made is the last one. It is now perfect. I can add nothing to it. And if I did, it would no longer be perfect. If I took away that last stroke, it would, no. I write books. It's the same thing. There comes a point that's got to go. That's that's suddenly taken away all the beauty that was there. The message that was coming is, it's a completion to which nothing could be added, nothing subtracted. And then the observer says, beautiful. When God created, he says, it is good. That's it. Don't touch it. Don't give a duck two heads. No. It's good. Everything's good. It's perfect. And Jesus said, it is finished. And the Spirit echoes that all down through the ages. It's done. It's finished. Don't, don't. All you can do is behold it. The essence of faith is, wow, I've seen it. And we live in an age today that's forgotten totally how to wonder. They've forgotten really what beauty is. And they now produce idiotic lines and blotches of paint and call it beauty. There's a harmony. Have you noticed the symphony of beauty? It's harmonious. It's balanced. To the point, such harmony can bring tears to your eyes. Or, in the presence of beautiful sound, you find yourself tapping or clapping, or dancing, or spontaneously. You didn't have to think about it. You found your foot was going in a tap before you realized it was. Something inside of me resonates with that. So it isn't a textbook. It's not something that says do this and then do that and then do the other. It's rather a living Christ and he's dancing with me before I realized it. I use the term resonate. It resonates. That beauty somehow gets a hold of me inside. My very soul holds me, resonates, fills me to actually become who I become. There's a Greek word which, again, it's like those other words I mentioned, it, it feeds into it. But the Greek word is echo. That is the Greek word, echo. And um, it is somewhat, 
what it means in English, or otherwise it wouldn't have been left untranslated. But the word echo, the actual meaning in the Greek language is to hold. And so it would be used of your possessions. You hold them. They surround you. They That makes home. It's the, the old slippers that your feet just know how to slip into. The, the old sofa that you've already made a dugout for yourself. You know, it's, you hold it. But it, it's much more than that. It, it means that what you hold, holds you. And it's gotten inside of you so that you actually now are identified. That's who you are by what you hold. Um, well, when I think of how we use the word in English, I, I see a lot of resemblance there. Um, I, I, when I first even began to think about it, I was in Ireland and on the west coast of Ireland, it's where the Atlantic comes crashing against the cliffs. And there are very few entrepreneurs in Ireland. Um, thank God. But, um, well, I, I was there in the 1950s, so who knows what it is today. But I, I would walk and right way in the north, a place called Donegal, just outside of Londonderry, and I would walk down the west coast all the way down to Kerry and other places down at the bottom. And they have bays and rocks untouched for centuries. The, the birds of every description. And of course the crashing waves of the Atlantic. And there were many places there where I would stand and the, the waves were slamming against the rocks over here, but it echoed. And it echoed across here so that I heard it behind me, but it echoed from there to here to here. And as, and this is nonstop. And so you feel that you are held by the waves, that you are actually in some way united with the waves. You you are not standing here. You, you're there, but I'm not there. But there is here, and I, I'm inside of it. I'm engulfed inwardly with the Atlantic Ocean. To get the point, um, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ constrains me. That word constrain in the Greek is echo. Um, I guess constrain is as good as any. But, but it means the love of Christ resonates within me. The love of Christ is all around me. I hear, I hear, I hear. I'm caught, I'm held. Until the love of Christ has become my identity. Well, that's beholding the beauty of the Lord. Does any of this, you get what I'm talking about? In Titus, I think it's 2.10, um, Paul said to, to Titus, 
and he was to talk to these these people whose reputation in the past had been petty thieving, and um, that was their big thing. But he said, now talk to them about adorning the doctrine of God. Adorning, like putting on clothes, you adorn. You choose, I wear this, I don't wear that. I. And he said, that is, don't for goodness sake, just have doctrine. Have doctrine beautified. You're adorning yourself. Beautified by the Spirit actually being and doing that in your life. So that these people are no longer petty thieves, but rather they've put on the very reverse of that self-giving love. He said that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to behold his beauty and to meditate in his temple. There is a time, as we said last week, you're present too. Well, he was present too. The glory, the beauty of God. There's also a time, we said last week, to shut your mouth. And that was in line with what they had been saying. It would be better that we died in Egypt. And he said, shut your mouth because your words are so powerful that you're going to turn the whole camp into the... But there is a time, there's a time for silence. There's a time simply and only to be present too. But there's a time then arising from the silence, arising from beholding our words. So, so we're not Trappist monks. We don't go for 12 months of the year without talking. Um, no, we talk. But our talking arises from having beheld. Do, do you follow me? Now this is where there's much confusion um, where, where Jesus said, whatever you desire, ask and you'll have it. And so people come with their list of, you know, the latest car, a 10-bedroom house. Um, um, well, they do very seriously. And they say, Jesus said it. No, he didn't. He said, whatsoever you ask in my name. And in my name is a New Testament word, phrase, that covers you are embraced, you are engulfed in the very person of Jesus. Essentially, he's saying, whatever you ask, having seen the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and whatever is going to further that, ask. And so here he says, meditate, which it not now meditate over here now is been married to Eastern meditation, which has nothing. And if you're if you're not aware of this, hear me: nothing to do with biblical meditation. Eastern meditation means you empty your mind, open for every demon spirit. But biblical meditation is you fill your mind with what you've seen in the beauty. And so you, you 
biblical meditation is very much like the cows that chew the cud. If you, you know, and the sheep, the goats. They, they bring the food back again and they re-chew it and they re-chew it. And um, that's biblical meditation I have seen. And now I am informing my brain. I'm informing the cells of my body by saying what I've seen. And I bring it back, bring it back. It also covers prayer. It covers every part of conversation with God. It covers worship. It's a big word that is used there. But the point is, it arises out of living silence. You've, you've seen. And of course, at the end, most people who memorize verses 1, 2, 3 also memorize verse 13. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Um, that's how he sums up the entire psalm. So I guess what we've been trying to talk about is waiting on the Lord. Um, wait does not mean what happens in a doctor's office. You, you checked in and now you wait. And there's silence and you hear every time someone moves the creak of the chair. Um, wait. No, it's not that. At all, it's not that. The Hebrew word actually means to braid, to plait, to entwine. So those who are entwined with the Lord, that those who are plaited together with him. And, and if, think of it as you have two strands of a great rope, and then you have one itsy-bitsy little skinny piece of string, and you plait the three together. And that little piece of string now is as strong as, as one with the rope that has been created. That's the idea of weight. It means you are plaited together, entwined with the Holy Trinity. And that's what David has been doing. That's what it means to behold the beauty of the Lord. Okay, one last thing on a very practical note. Because I, I, I'm not condemning anybody by saying very few people even know about this, let alone do it. Whereas in the Old Testament, David said, all the days of my life. And so we should to catch up um, and it's more difficult for persons in our western world to even approach this than in other parts of the world because we have been taught to overthink 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 do 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 never stop talking on 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 and, and do five things all at once and think that's success Whereas obviously what I've said is to retract into silence of wonder. And so I come back to this on a practical level now. He said, dwell, dwell in the house of the Lord. So that, that means dwell, you know, 
It's where your address, you live there, your home. It, it means that you're not limited to a certain time. It's not even a certain locale. Because if it's all the days of your life, well, it could be anywhere, you see. No, this is dwell in a place which is all place. Dwell in a house that covers my entire life. It's a tent, it's a temple that is actually the dimension that we are now living in. So you don't have to get there. You are there with the blind eyes. You're actually there. Right at this moment, everything I've said is, you is, you is, it is. If you don't get it, it's because your, your first prayer needs to be, Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Because it is so. Uh, Paul said to pagans in Acts 17, quoting one of their prophets, poets, actually, poet, prophet, said, in him we live and move and have our being and that we are the offspring of the Almighty. Now that was two pagans, and it was written by one of their own poets. And yet Paul brings that into the scripture and says he was right on. It's absolutely true. And so this, as I say, applies to everybody. If Paul could say this to pagans in Athens, I can certainly say it to everybody here. Um that it is so, it absolutely is so. In him we live, we move around and do our business. In him we discover our I amness, we have our being, and realize that we are his offspring. That is everybody, and it is so. This is what resurrection and ascension and giving of the Holy Spirit means. Something happened in the human race that changed everything and everybody. But I'm only interested in telling you guys right now that this is so. You dwell in this temple we talk about. You live there. That is your address, even if you're blind to it. And you must feel feel that because we, we sit here and we talk and it resonates among us that we are the stones of the temple. And, and you say, where's the temple? I don't see it. You know, well, that's no condemnation to you. It just means that you need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see. This is where you live. This is where you work. Your, your whole life is encompassed in what we've been talking about, which means I can discover the beauty of the Lord in the factory. I, I discover the beauty of God serving in HEB. You know, it's, do, do you follow me? We've got to realize that we dwell in the presence of God. He doesn't come and go. We don't believe that he shows up. 
we had a moment of awakening. We caught a glimpse of his beauty and said he showed up. No. We put down our pad of trying to build a hotel in a place of beauty and realized the beauty. The beauty didn't show up. The beauty was there all the time. And so I strongly suggest that admitting our being but children, kindergarten in this, and I mean that, I'm not being snarky. I place myself here, I'm a child of the West. But we need to begin, just begin, by carving out a time, even though what we're talking about covers all times and all places, you've got to start somewhere. Carve out a time but with a view of extending that consciousness of his presence into all times. So I'm not suggesting you have a quiet time, because that has a finality to it. That is between 8 in the morning and 8.30. Um, but I am, on the other hand, suggesting you have a quiet time. When, with a view to training yourself and letting the Holy Spirit have a place in which to open your eyes. You behold the beauty of the Lord, and then extend it into all of life. Deliberately go, as you serve in H-E-B, and say, this day, I'm going to practice. Have you ever read the book, The Practice of the Presence of God? That guy, he's doing what I'm talking about. To, to realize it is so, now let me practice moving into that and understand that in that beauty of God is an end to our anxieties in there is an end to our brokenness and pain there's healing as we be present to the beauty of God and it doesn't always mean circumstances change that's an invention of quite recent the, the Bible says, and he says here, and I close my Bible because I'm hopelessly at the time, but he says, um, put me on level ground. That is, stuff's happening all around me, but I need some level ground to stand on. I, I, I need somewhere to balance my life. And so let me walk through this See, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you are with me. That is, I know it, I behold it. it it's not a rumor. I, I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm doing so within this presence. See? And, and that's level ground. I, in his wisdom, in his insight, in his strength, I, I can handle it. It's, it's level ground. I'm not tripping over every stone. I'm balanced, steady. Okay. Yeah. Go do it. Um, for the Lord is your salvation. He is your light. Why on earth would you be afraid? The only reason you'd be afraid is you don't see the light and you don't see his salvation. And so, anyway... I, I won't start again. <laughs> That's, I, I, I landed the plane. Turn off the engines and open the door. You can get out of here and do it. So, Father, 
we ask for sure, for sure, that your Holy Spirit shall take these words, open our eyes at the, the, the most beginning level that we live and move in you, and open our eyes to see your beauty and quietly change our lives. Give us the great metanoia that we become who we are, the very expression of your temple. We receive your blessing, Lord Jesus Christ.